today, and we are in Revelation 2 and chapter 3. As I keep saying, it's the light or the, the lighter, easier section of the book of Revelation, the, the low-hanging fruit, although today's is a little challenging, but we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are generally known as the letters to the seven churches. Uh, these were seven real cities, churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, They weren't the only cities, they weren't the only churches, but they were seven real churches that Jesus wrote a letter to. And and so they are real churches that had a specific word some 2,000 years ago from Jesus to them, but we believe that this book is for us as well. And and as again, we hear at the end of each of these letters, let, let the one who hears, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. And so these are representative for all churches, all Christians, for all times. These letters, as we've been noting each week, have a pretty distinct pattern. Uh, there's going to be an address. This is, this is a letter to the angel of the church. And the angel might have been the, the messenger, like the pastor or leaders of the church, maybe a literal angel. We aren't exactly sure. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's, it's to the church coming to this messenger, whether it's pastor, whether it's angel. Um, so that's the address. They all have that. There's a statement uh, about Jesus, which actually he already said in chapter one, or, or John saw this vision in chapter one of Jesus. And each time Jesus writes this letter, he pulls a phrase from that revelation in Revelation one of, of himself. We keep noting that. And it seems to be this, this phrase he pulls has some specific thing to that church. And so we'll note that again today. Um, there's usually a, a word of praise or commendation Uh, There's one for five of the churches. We'll see one today. Um, There are two churches that only get a rebuke, Sardis and Laodicea. Those are still to come. Um, So there's this generally a statement for churches of praise. Then there's a statement of rebuke, of of concern um, for five of the seven. And only two don't have that, Uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia will, will only get a positive word from Jesus. There's an exhortation of some sort, something from Jesus that, that says repent. Maybe it's um, don't be afraid. Maybe it's be faithful, hang on. Um, there's, a, there's a warning statement of what Jesus might do, a consequence for disobedience. Sometimes it's an offer of encouragement. There's then the invitation to hear. And then there's the promise to the, the Nike. Remember the Nike swish is, is the symbol for victory or it's the symbol for the shoe, but it comes from uh, the word Nike, that, which means victory or conqueror or overcomer. And, and that is in each of these. Now, I, just a word for a moment. Um, I, I was thinking this week, um, I, I've told you before that I have a friend who pastors on the East Coast and we always message during the week. Uh, hey, praying for you, what are you preaching? And, and we kind of check in on each other, often even on Sunday mornings. And uh, this week as we were interacting and as I was in, in study, you know, you know what hit me? Um, and I just, I, every once in a while I need to say this to you all because like if I wanted to just teach and preach what I wanted to, you know, we, we would talk about things like uh, the doctrine of, of salvation. I love that. Like I love to just talk all the time about the new birth, being born again. We had a great time last week uh, for Sunday Night Theology, by the way, thinking about the new birth with a lecture from Tim Keller. I mean, that's something I love to just go on and on and on about. Other doctrines of theology, I was on a licensing council uh, this week for a pastor in our denomination, and 
It was just fun to nerd out on theology. Um, but I try not to just preach and teach my hobby horses. My, my goal for almost 15 years as a church has been that we, we get a good diet. And so we, we spend some time in the Old Testament, which, by the way, in a few weeks as we get into summer, we'll get into the Psalms. Uh, we, we spend time in the Gospels. Then we're in right, the Minor Prophets last year. And then we come into the letters. And so we're, we're trying to just be well-rounded. Um, and, and so now we're in Revelation 2 and 3. Like, I haven't done anything in Revelation before. Um, this typically isn't, like, my favorite thing. I don't really... See, one of my hobby horses isn't in times, which is what most people think of with Revelation, right? The eschatology, eschaton, how it's all going to work out. And, you know, charts uh, of when Jesus is coming and, and, and you know, uh, left behind movies and, and all that stuff. Um, like, I could kind of care less. I believe Jesus is coming back. And that's good enough for me when it happens and how it happens, you know. Um, but it matters, it does. But, but again, that's not my hobby horse. So we haven't spent a lot of time in Revelation, uh, but we are in these. And this has been something for a while I've wanted to look at because, as I've said, these letters, they serve as representative letters. These were written to churches. And, and we're a church right in the middle of our teenage years, 15 years old almost. And, and so there's, this is for us. But all that to say, um, the letter today to Thyatira, we'll talk about that city in a second. This is a letter with, with some big praise and, and some big rebuke. And, and there's some hard words of Jesus. And so um, just, yeah, like, you know, uh, anyway, that's my little aside this morning. This is, this is God's word and it's true and, it, and life is here. And, and we need to listen to the whole counsel of God. Um, and sometimes that means hearing some big praises and some big rebukes. So if you have a Bible, I hope you do, would you turn to Revelation, the last book in the Bible? And we are in Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29. This is the fourth letter uh, that's written to seven churches. This is the last letter in chapter 2. And we'll get into chapter 3 next week. The letter to the church at Thyatira, Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. I'll read if you could follow along. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the 
deep things of Satan. To you I say, and I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. One commentator writes concerning the letter to Thyatira, the longest and most difficult of the seven letters is addressed to the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the cities. And it is striking, just if you look at, if you have a Bible that has headings, this is the longest word from Jesus uh, of of all the letters. It's the most amount of verses. And it's written to this this city that was marginalized. It was was really not well known. It was the least impressive in terms of it being a city in the ancient world, as far as cities go. And yet, uh, as, as I mentioned, and as this commentator noted, um, it's, it's difficult. There, there are some hard things that Jesus says in this letter. Uh, what the city was known for in the ancient world, uh, really kind of two things. Um, one, it had a highly organized trade union or, or trade guild. And then it was known for its textile and fabrics. In fact, some of you might recall in, in Acts chapter 16, this is when the Apostle Paul has gone to Philippi, which is, of course, in modern-day Europe. And so this is the first church in Europe, which we should be thankful for. Um, that, that church plant there in, in Acts 16, one of the participants uh, was from Thyatira. Acts 16, verse 14 says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. And I used to think, well, okay, whatever, you know, she sold purple goods, big, big deal. But the point is actually um, the textile and fabric industry there was a big deal. There, there was a special technology that they had for producing uh, purple or, or like a Turkish red, scholars call it, this, this dye from the matter root rather than the shellfish. So this insignificant little city, Uh, Not impressive. It had a lot of trade guilds and whatnot, but also this textile work. And they were known for being able to produce this purple uh, work. And so no wonder then uh, Luke would mention that uh, concerning Lydia. So, and even that's fascinating to think about. I don't have the little map on the screen today, but but, but Thyatira is inland a bit. It's insignificant. And and it was quite a distance for her to get, whenever it was, uh, from... Thyatira to Philippi, across some water and and whatnot. But this city, although unimpressive, although marginalized, although not that important, even though it had this industry, which we'll come back to, a big part of this city in the ancient world was its syncretism as it related to its religious life. Really, this is true of all these cities uh, in the Roman Empire. Again, as we noted last week, the, the, the Roman Empire, they didn't care if you added Jesus to your other worship. Worship all the other gods, a little bit of Jesus, that, that was fine. The more gods, that was fine. But as soon as you said, no, it's Jesus only, he is Lord, not Caesar. And as soon as you stop, you know, 
practicing the various forms of idolatry that the Romans did and, and, and took a stand, then, then you were in trouble. And, and we're going to see there's some play here. These, these Christians, these believers in, in this city, um, they struggled. And, and, and probably many of them being in the, um, the, the, the guilds and whatnot, there, there would have been pressure. When, when the guilds would get together and they would have some business gathering, there would be time to, to give a, a word to one of the gods, to honor you know, the emperor, Zeus, all of that stuff. And, and these Christians would have had to decide, do I go along with it because everybody's telling me to go along with it? Or, or do I... Do I refrain and say, no, I, I worship Jesus? So we'll, we'll unpack that a bit more. So verse 18, Jesus says to the angel, maybe the pastor, maybe the messenger, of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus says, Tell this church, my words, these words that you're getting are the words of the Son of God. Now, to our ears, that's probably most of us not unusual. We, we think of Jesus as the Son of God. But this is the only time that phrase is found in the book of Revelation. Like, so this is, again, it, it should stand out for that. John never uses that phrase here in Revelation. Of course, that is a big deal to the Apostle John and his other writings. But here in Revelation, it's the only time that title is found. Why would Jesus at this point want to speak to this church and remind them that he's the son of God? Well, one part is uh, later in this letter, Jesus is going to refer to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is going to play an integral part. And in Psalm 2, it's a messianic psalm. Um, we'll look at it in a moment. But, but there, the, the Messiah, the promised Christ is called the son of God. And so there's this play in maybe to that as well. Um, in verse 27, uh, it says in, in Psalm 2, the Lord said to me, you are my son. So there's, there's definitely some of that. But at the same time, th th this is a claim to deity. Jesus is the son of God. That's, that's one way of saying he was God. And it stands in contrast to the local cults, right? These, these little gods that were worshiped. One in particular, Apollo Tyrannus, and, and this, this guy kind of merged with another um, emperor um, identified as Apollo incarnate. So you have uh, these acclaimed sons of Zeus, okay, in, in this town, these two sons of the god Zeus. And now you have Jesus saying, no, no, th those sons, those aren't really sons of God. I'm the son of God. I, the resurrected Jesus is the, the true son of God. So his, his majesty, his divinity, his authority are, are all underscored by that title. It's, it's not throwaway. He, he was saying, those, those gods that claim to be the sons of Zeus, they're not the son of God. They don't have the authority that I have. And then he pulls from Revelation 1. Remember we said each time, one of the things Jesus says is, I'm, and he uses one of those phrases. And so he says, that he is one with eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. So those descriptions come in Revelation 1, 14 and 15. What, what are these all about? Well, on the one hand, this is a similar description to what we find in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. There was not the Son of God, but an angel, like, a, like we think angels, who was described as one like whose eyes are like flaming torches and had arms and legs like the beam, like a gleam of burnished bronze. So 
So Daniel describes this angel in that way. So John now is talking about the son of God, and it's, it's similar. So again, there's something mysterious and profound. But again, if this is the son of God, this one with eyes that, that are like a flame of fire, it's the idea of the intensity of his vision and holiness. That's what Jesus is conveying here. He, he doesn't tolerate evil, especially from so-called gods in the town. And, and no, he's the son of God and his eyes, his eyes see. And he's going to, in fact, say later that he knows things and he can see things. He, he will not allow compromise with evil. In fact, we're going to hear he, he's going to crush evil. And so his eyes are like, are like this flame of fire. And then his feet to be like a burnished bronze. Well, again, this is maybe a comment related to the, the trade guilds and, and whatnot. Um, that metal is definitely far superior to anything that Thyatira could produce. They did produce like a military-grade brass, scholars tell us. So if they're able to produce brass like that, well, Jesus's burnished bronze feet are, are much superior. No one can stand to those feet. And, and again, we're not working through Revelation, but we're going to see that, that Jesus tramples his enemies later. This one with these, these feet of burnished bronze. Jesus can see the church's deepest needs and, and he can deal with them. In fact, this is throughout the whole Bible. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, hear this, no creature is hidden from his sight. No one is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So that's in Hebrews. And here Jesus says, Jesus says, I have these eyes that are like a flame of fire I can see, and my feet are like burnished bronze. It's nothing compared to what Thyatira's produce. And so that's, that's his word to this church about who he is. Well, as I put in the title, Jesus does have big words of praise to this church, and we need to see it. Verse 19, verse 19, Jesus says, I know your works. I know your deeds. And then he lists four things in particular. He says, I know, first off, your love. Your love, your love for God, your love for one another. I know it. And, and we should be thinking, if we've been here for the last few weeks, the church at Ephesus, remember, what had they lost? Their first love. They, they, they had good works also, but, but they, they didn't love. This church, hey, that's part of what they're doing great in. That's the first thing Jesus commends them for. You love. You know how to, to love God. You know how to love one another. Secondly, he says, I know your works, which he says your, is your, also your faith or your faithfulness. You're committed you're faithful to God. You're faithful to one another. I see it. I know it. Number three, service. Uh, in the Greek, it's a word that, where we get the word deacon. A deacon is a servant who serves. I know how you serve, how you literally are willing to put on a, a, a waiter's apron, a, a server's apron, and, and care for one another and, and, and take care of the body, take care of the needs of the community. You, you serve. And then he's still not done. He says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, and then your patient endurance, patient endurance. Two words I hate, patient 
endurance. I want things now. Can anybody else relate and say amen? Right? I want to be like Jesus yesterday. And I, I still lose my temper. And I still say things I ought not to say in front of my kids. I still think things I ought not to think. But they had patient endurance. Probably, yes, in regard to their being sanctified, but, but also it speaks of what they were enduring around them in, in the world, in the culture. This, this city that, again, if, if they were in the trade, they were exposed all the time to the expectation of their worship of the so-called gods and the participation in what they did which we'll see in a moment, was pretty evil in that city in that day. And they, they were enduring the persecution, the, the laughter, the mockery. They, they were patient in their endurance. Biblical patience is, is active. It's not just, you know, it, it's, I'm waiting. I always think of in the Psalms, uh, Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. That's an active waiting on God. Jesus says, I, I commend you for your deeds, what you're doing as Christians. You love, you have faith, you serve, and you have this patient endurance. And then he's not even done. Look what he says. And your later works exceed the first. In other words, you're, you're growing in this. You're doing better. Like, not only did you start out well, but, but the longer you follow me, you're, you're getting even better. All this wrapped up in one verse. And again, just in terms of words and real estate, it's one sentence in English, one sentence, but there's a lot there, church. One scholar says this, they, they differ from the church at Ephesus in being commended for their love, their love for God and for fellow believers. It's alive and radiant. It's animating their work. They're faithful and engaged in service to one another. They're enduring and persevering in their life as Christians and what is perhaps most remarkable of all, their growth as believers, they're making progress. Their works now exceed what they did as new believers. Even though their commendation is limited to one verse, the strengths of the Thyatiran church are notable. And Jesus knows it. He sees it. And we need to be encouraged in that. In the areas in your life where you're making progress, Jesus knows. And he celebrates it. Just, just for a minute. You don't have to answer out loud, but, but what, what's an area where you're making progress in the Christian life? Jesus knows, and he commends us for it. And, and like the Apostle Paul, who would say, I worked harder than all the others, you know, then he would quickly say, but it was not I, but, but God at work in me. So no, this isn't about bragging rights, but whatever progress we make, Jesus knows, and we know it's not us. It's God at work in us, but but Jesus celebrates when we make progress in the Christian faith, when we're growing in displaying the fruit of the Spirit, when we're growing in in these even these four areas of love, faith, service, patient endurance. Kind of, it's a virtue list, like we see in other places in the New Testament. So, where are you making progress? Jesus knows. And then, a word of encouragement: Are you making progress? Right, the Christian life is it's, it's a journey toward Christ likeness. We need to be. Active to be a Christian isn't to just sit back and let God move you. you, you we're, we're getting in step with the flow of the Spirit and, and listening and, and listening to Him from His Word, responding and, and, and then responding 
with our thoughts, our words, our deeds, and so on, making progress. So Jesus has words of big praise for this church. Boy, do I wish this was one where that's all he had to say. But it's not. And we need to hear this. In verse 20, the tone shifts, and Jesus has big words of rebuke as well. Verse 20. But I have this against you, church of Thyatira. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So if, again, you've been here, and if you were here last week, it sounds very similar to this church in Pergamum. This church in Pergamum was holding to there was called the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And in describing that, Jesus said, they eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And now here in Thyatira, it's not the same names. It's not the Nicolaitans. It's not those that hold the teaching of Balaam. It's, it's this woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and she is teaching and seducing my servants, that's, that's Jesus saying, my people, to practice those same sins, sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So this church, hear this, that's known for its love. It's known for its, its faith. It's known for its patient endurance. It's known for, for progress. Um, it, in the midst of all that, has to, is, is not only tolerating, but, but going along with them. And there are people engaged in these same two sins, sexual immorality, food sacrifice to idols. And it's something to do with some woman named Jezebel. Scholars aren't clear on literally, is it a specific woman? And is that her name? Or is it, is it a prophetess? It seems like it, a woman teacher who, who is like Jezebel, and we'll talk about her in a second. Um, but whatever, whether specifically a woman with that name, whether or not um, it was someone that had the characteristics, there was a false teaching that some in the church said was okay. And, and Jesus said, it, it's like that other place, but different name. And the practice involves sexual morality, food, sacrifice to idols. Now, who was Jezebel? Well, she was a false prophet. Um, in, in the Old Testament, she was Ahab's wife. This is from 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Uh, she played a central role, sadly, in, in inducing, introducing the worship of Baal, one of the false gods of the peoples around uh, the land of Canaan where the Israelites uh, had landed. Um, and again, just as there's this reference to Balaam earlier in Pergamum, now there's this reference here. To, to this lady. She was probably, literally, the most wicked queen in Israel's history. First um, Kings 16 through Second Kings 9 describe all her treacherous behavior. Um, she, she was kind of the, the power behind the throne as the wife of this King Ahab, who wasn't a godly king at all. She led her husband to worship pagan gods. 
She killed God's prophets. Um, she, she had others murdered, righteous, uh, a righteous man named Naboth in his vineyard. Um, she, she was evil personified. And again, if you've read your Old Testament, you, you, you are aware of that. Um, one person says to try to lighten the mood, it's been well said that we name our sons David and Paul and our daughters Mary and Rachel, but we name our dogs Goliath and Nero, and we name our cats Jezebel. As a dog man myself, I appreciate that. Although I am trying to be nice to the cats in our neighborhood more and more, but, but we, we get it, right? Um, I, I, I've never met a woman named Jezebel. Evil personified, again, to, to come back to the reality. It, it's not just, we laugh at that because it's so true. No one in their right mind would name their daughter Jezebel. And so this church has this, so probably some, some woman teacher, a prophetess, is going around, and whether she has the name or gets just tagged that name, she is getting God's people in this church to buy into this idea that it's okay to engage in sexual immorality and um, practicing eating food sacrificed to idols, meaning in the context of like a pagan worship service. One thing we need to kind of understand, what would come like in the next century, this is still first century, but but hang on for a second, because what's going to come in the second century, uh, church history is going to tell us, is this, this false teaching called Gnosticism. Okay, and and it was this, and, and this is, these are maybe the early beginnings of that that heresy that would come that, that that would come you know years to come, but still kind of the early inklings of it. And full blown Gnosticism, what what they believe that is that spirit is good, body um, not so good, and, and what you got to try to do is is get in touch with your spiritual self and the spirit world, God, Jesus, whatever, Holy Spirit. But, but the body can't. Body, bodies, bodies do evil things. But really, if, it's, if there's this polarization, then just do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. Because if you've, if you've been able to separate and, and figure out the spiritual world, that's all that matters. And so if, if that's one part of where full-blown Gnosticism would go, which again, part of it being a heresy is because Gnosticism denied that Jesus was the God-man, God in the flesh, they wouldn't believe that because flesh is bad. But if the flesh is bad inherently and, and if it doesn't matter what you do because if the goal is to just get in touch with your spiritual self, then, then live however you want. Commit whatever kind of sexual acts you want. That doesn't matter. So, so this may have been some early signs of that. Uh, again, I mentioned it last week. We need to remind ourselves of this. This word... Sexual immorality. Um, scholars tell us that uh, this word, it, it's the Greek word in verb form or noun form, pornea. It's, you can hear in that pornography. That's where that word comes from. This word, it, it's found in the Greek literature and it was always used as a broad term for any illicit sexual practice. Could have been adultery, could have been fornication, which is sex before marriage, um, adultery, I mentioned sex with someone else's spouse or someone who's not your spouse, prostitution, homosexual practice. Um, Jesus, some people want to say, well, Jesus never talked about those sins. 
He did. Right here. He did. And Jesus didn't need to define the term because it was understood. Sexual immorality covered all these things. That, that was, that's what it meant. That's what it means. And Jesus says, you, to this church, you tolerate that woman. Tolerate, tolerance. She seduces my servants to practice these things. And, and hear me, friends, to practice this doesn't just mean to, to struggle with. We all struggle with things. We all struggle with temptations to things. Jesus was tempted, but never to sin. We all struggle with temptation. The fact that God's word says, that Jesus says, these are practicing these things. The idea is they are engaged in them, and it's not that they're trying to stop and God help me and brothers and sisters, I need you. That's, like, that's important. We need that. And whatever you struggle with, you need the Lord, you need one another. We need to be able to be real with each other about our struggles in any of these areas. But to practice these things, the idea is like, I'm going this way. I, this is okay to engage in over and over again. And again, they would have struggled because of the trade guilds and the pressure to, to engage in this. And again, this, that syncretistic thing, like this is what they did. The, the Romans in the broader region, their, their religion wasn't about creed and what they believed. It was just about doing, lighting candles, burning incense, engaging in things. If you, the, the more you engage in, especially the very pagan sexual sin, you, you engage that because you hope that that will get the gods excited. And if the gods get excited, maybe they'll do something. It was very active. And, and so it goes on, in fact, in verse 24, there's going to be this phrase, the deep things of Satan. And again, we don't know if that was their own designation, if it was kind of a, just a sarcastic jab, but, but, but dark, evil, evil things. This big rebuke is that this church is tolerating this false prophet, allowing its members to participate, not, not identifying that practice as sin. And again, it's, it's not that we don't all have different struggles inside. We do. And the church needs to be a safe place to come and say, I, I need some help. I, I, these things are tempting to me. And, and again, like this church that was loving, we need to love people and say, I'll walk with you. I'll listen to you. I'll pray with you. But, but a church culture... That, that tolerates this, Jesus says, is, is wrong. We live in a world, friends, we know this, that loves the word tolerance. That, that's, that's what we all are supposed to be about. We live in a culture that tolerates evil, and, and, if, and if you disagree with the evil, it's called a phobia. We live in a world that if you take a stand, you're considered hateful. We live in a world that if you have conviction, it's called bigoted. We live in a world that says centuries old, Christianity, Christian teaching is discriminatory. 
And we need to just take those punches and love people. And love people. And, and show by our action that we aren't hateful and f- fearful, full of phobia. And we aren't fanatical except for Jesus. We're, we're, we're trying to follow Jesus. We're trying to be like this church that was commended for these things. That's what we ought to be about. In our day, we may not have a Jezebel prophetess running around Sonoma County, but there's progressive Christianity, which is just liberal Christianity in a new name, which is just not biblical Christianity. Listen, there's a grace, verse 21. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. Remember last week, that was the the word from Jesus, repent. And that's got to be our word every day. Have you repented yet today of something? If you haven't, we need to pause right now because surely all of us have done something, thought something, said something that we need to turn back to God for. Say, God, I need you. That's, That's our life. And Jesus says, I gave her time. There's grace there but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. You know, what was Jesus' message? Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Mark writes that after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Proclaiming the gospel of God. And that gospel, let me read the words, I want you to hear it. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. That's Jesus' grace to all of us, to all people. Turn. And when he says repent and believe, he's not saying repent, clean up yourself, stop doing everything wrong, and when you get yourself right, then I'll take you. He says just repent, turn to me, and believe in me, and I'll help you. I'll take care of your stuff. But we have to turn away from ourselves, away from the prevailing culture, and turn to Jesus. And Jesus says, I gave her time, but she refuses. And so Jesus has some action, and, and this, these are difficult words to hear, right? This, this sounds so different from John 3, 16, <laughs> but these are still the words of Jesus. Verses 22 and 23, behold, I will throw her onto her sickbed, a sickbed, and those who commit adultery, and probably here, now that word adultery is speaking of spiritual adultery. Some of you might remember when we went through the minor prophets That was a word to God's people over and over again. To turn away from God was to commit adultery. Just as committing adultery is to turn away from your spouse, to spiritual adultery is to turn away from God and to go after other things. And so those who commit adultery with her, who who are turning from me and, and practicing this, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. So there's still grace for her followers, she says the time's up for her. She had time, but I'm dealing with her. But her followers, unless they repent, they await the same act for me, but there's time. 
But I will, verse 23, strike her children dead. Probably not literally her offspring, but like her followers. And again, that's hard for us to hear. But he says, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. See, that Jesus who's got these eyes that see and know. He says, I search mind and heart. And the scriptures all over the place talk about how God knows. God knows our thoughts. God knows things. He knows us. And I will give to each of you according to your, your works. Now, we've talked before about how disease and punishment are sometimes the result of sin, and they're a punishment. This was a biblical view. Uh, we, we looked several weeks ago, in fact, a month ago, uh, as we pre- were preparing for the Lord's Supper, we looked at length in 1 Corinthians 11, where the Apostle Paul says, some of you, because of how you've been treating this meal, some of you are sick. And there's other examples. Sometimes, not all the time. Can't universalize it. Job went through things. Jesus was killed. But sometimes sickness, suffering is a result of sin. And and here, Jesus was dealing with this sin to give them disease and to take them out. But Jesus has an encouragement back to this church. Verse 24 through 29 now. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, and just hear that. Again, whether they call that themselves officially, but but this was dark, this stuff. To you, I I say, I, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have. Keep progressing in your love and your faith and your patient endurance and your service. You're doing fine, those of you that, that haven't bought into this. And then Jesus here, for the first time, switches the order. Normally, he, he's gonna t- say the word of promise at the end, but, but here it comes next, and then the statement to hear comes. Here he says, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. See, there's the Psalm 2. And we don't have time to get into there, but you can note that, look back. What's fascinating, friends, Jesus in Psalm 2 is, is said to be the one who gets to rule. And now Christians who overcome, who hold on, who don't go the way of Jezebel and the way of this false teaching, they are promised to, to reign with Jesus. How glorious is that to think about? It's, it's glorious to think about. The church has already been, been said in, in verse 7 uh, that, that those who overcome in, to that letter to Ephesus, they're going to be provided the tree of life, right? They're going to get to live eternally. Um, the crown of life and victory come over the second death. We saw that in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Uh, Those who overcome have been promised entrance into the final reward, verse 17. And now, those who overcome, Christians who overcome, there's yet another promise to to reign one day with Jesus. Glorious. What are we going to be doing one day with Jesus? Reigning with him if if we continue. Not if we're perfect and never struggle. Not if we're perfect and never sin. But if when we sin, we repent, and and if we keep coming back 
and if our, our life is that of the way of Jesus. And then he, he goes on even further. It says, I will give him, verse 28, the morning star. I will give him the morning star. What John means, scholars dispute it, and there's lots of different possibilities, but likely at the end of the day, this is speaking of Jesus himself, because Jesus is the great morning star. He's referred to in that way, and probably as we know, what, what, is, what is heaven ultimately? It's, it's Jesus. We get Jesus. We get to be with Jesus. We get him. That's, right, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, you know what? Run this race, keeping your eyes on Jesus, the one who endured the cross. He's our reward. The morning star, we'll, we'll get him. Big, big praise, big, big rebuke. But there's grace in it. There's reminder that there's opportunity always to repent to Jesus. And Jesus, we've been talking in our catechism that he's, he's our redeemer. And he was fully human, but also fully God. So verse 20, our question 23 in our catechism, I'll read the question, you join me in the response. Why must the redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective, and also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. Jesus is either going to have wrath poured out on sin in the future, and, and people that have followed that will suffer then, or maybe in the present like this church was dealing with, God, help us. Or God's wrath has been dealt with on Jesus in the past, and that's what we're trusting in. So we come today, once again, first Sunday of the month, to communion, to the Lord's Supper. Uh, In a moment, we're going to end our service with a song, but I want to read the words to this song. Um, I want you to hear these words about this Redeemer who we'll sing about, who we'll visibly and tangibly remember in a moment. Because this one that we remember in this meal is, is the Lord of the gospel, the wondrous mystery. So church, come, behold, the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity, In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ, who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect son of man, in his living, in his suffering, in both, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons and daughters to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death 
the God of life, but no grave could restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope, Christ in power resurrected, as we will be when he comes. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus told him about what took place on the night that he would be deceived. And he writes this, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and following. I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in a moment, Joy and Joe are going to pass the elements. And what we do, what our tradition is, uh, when, when the bread comes, just grab it and hold it. And it's a time to pray. It's a time to repent, to say, God, forgive me. It's a time to invite him to search. And once everyone has the bread, then on my instruction, we'll, we'll take it together. It's meant to be a family meal. And it is meant for those that are followers of Jesus. If you're here and you're, you're searching, you're, you're investigating God and Christianity, it's great you're here. But let, let the bread pass and the cup pass. Just, just watch. And, and let, let, let this visible expression of the good news, let it impact you. But this is a meal for God's sons and daughters. And it is okay to let it pass. And then we'll do the same. The cup will come, take a cup, use it as time to pray, and then we'll drink together. And we'll sing together of the wondrous mystery. So Father, we come repenting again and again because that's what we do. We are so prone to wander, but we come back to you because your arms are open and you receive us. Your grace is sufficient I pray we as a church, as individuals in this church, would be a church known for these big, big words of commendation like this church, that we would love you, love one another, love our community. Come alongside people and listen and support and encourage. That we would, we would be faithful to you, that we would serve, and that we would endure, and that we would not tolerate what you don't tolerate even if it will cost us, whatever that is, God help us. And we remember now this gospel, this grace, this good news through this meal. Nourish us by it. Would you, would you be real and present to us in this meal, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.